Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. With me today, I have a special guest, Vic Bangia. Vic, welcome. Before we dive in, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, my name is Vic Bangia, and I'm the CEO of Verum Consulting. We're a corporate real estate strategy and operations consulting company. I spend most of my time helping corporate clients outsource their real estate services to some of the larger service providers like CBRE and JLL, Cushman and Wakefield, especially with those clients who have integrated facilities management needs along with their other real estate services needs. Um, but I'm also in the strategy and operations world, a workplace consultant and a business strategist. So I help companies of all kinds do various different things, um, you know, everything from training and development to workplace strategy um, to public speaking. It's a pretty wide ranging set of services that I do as part of my consulting practice. That's amazing. So I often think about Prior to the pandemic, when you were looking at customer data in terms of how they were using space, most of the time you could see 25 to 30 percent reduction without issue. There was always an excess amount of space that companies had within their portfolio that really they didn't they didn't need. And even if you got rid of that 25 to 30 percent, nobody would really feel the difference. That's just like super excess. Right. And you didn't really have to do very, very much to kind of to know that. And so now when you you hear about conversations around hybrid and whether it's trying to allocate a work style to someone or whatever sort of segmentation that companies are going to take in terms of, you know, what are the various working personas and what are the requirements to support the way in which those people work, that's all sort of associated with a certain amount of space based on understanding their dependency on physical space, whether that's the office space or a third party space or, you know, whatever the case might be. So thinking about the change of the workplace going forward, how do you think companies should be looking to manage the supply and demand of space? Because it's no longer going to be a one-to-one, which is the easiest type of space to manage. Now, as companies start to look at Okay, you've got some sort of rotation that's happening. Unless you're you're actually restricting people or you're dictating which days people are going to come in, which takes away from the serendipity and kind of the ability for people to just collaborate as they need to, because nobody really collaborates on a dictated schedule. It's things happen day by day and then you figure it out. How do you how do you foresee companies being able to manage their their space and kind of understanding that supply and demand? That is going to be a a challenge. I mean, I think some technological support there for scheduling the capacity of a facility is going to be necessary for this to happen. So you don't have a a rush on on the office one day and then have it sit, you know, empty for four more days during a five day week. And you're like, wow, this place was packed on Monday and then everybody's gone for the rest of the, the week. Those are going to be certainly some challenges. 
And that's where it's really interesting because there's some of the technology that I've seen that, you know, sort of allows for buildings to learn from utilization and capacity over time can actually predict what people's behavior is, you know, like what days are, are busy days in the office. But then, you know, I think it's also incumbent upon leaders to schedule things for themselves if they've got, you know, at least some a neighborhood space or something like that within their facilities to kind of say, look, we, we like to have our teams come in on Tuesday and then another group likes to, you know, have that same spot on a Thursday and you kind of rotate around that. But that is going to be a, a bit of a challenge. Uh, the other potential way of, of handling this is if you have, you know, large sort of congregation type spaces for collaboration that aren't necessarily as dense and that can accommodate, you know, a larger number of people. But you can go to a scheduling system and say, oh, look, it's it's got 40% availability based on the people that have booked it. And then you can still fit in there if you need to. I, I, I do think that it's going to be something that needs to be part and parcel of what an office building provides, whether it's provided by the landlord or if it's, you know, the tenant implementing the software as well. But I do think there's going to be a shift in, and, um, you know, markets are going to have some challenges. There's going to be a lot of sublease space on the market. And, you know, that's going to impact not just landlords. It's also going to impact service providers who, when they do their pro formas, the way they sort of run their numbers is oftentimes if it's a fully integrated account uh, that involves facilities and transactions, projects, lease administration and strategic planning, a lot of times they subsidize some of the revenue coming in from facilities from anticipated transaction revenue. If they've written the account that way and all of a sudden the transaction revenue falls off because of a pandemic, it puts a squeeze on the facilities management operating profits. And so the overall model is going to get hammered for some of these accounts, especially the larger ones. So um, I think some of those dynamics are going to really put some pressure on, you know, the industry and um, probably play out a little bit longer term than some people think. They think it's going to happen right away. I don't think, I don't think this market runs hot and cold like that, but I think once people start to figure out what they want to do and they come up with their strategy for the disposition of space, it could be challenging maybe three or five years out. Yeah. Yeah. And and I would agree. Like it's too early for companies to be looking to rid of space unless there's an imminent lease that it's kind of like, okay, there's an opportunity to get rid of the lease. Now we don't necessarily need it. It's kind of still iffy in terms of what, the next 12 months is going to look like so we can save some money in the interim and then get back in at some point in time if we if we choose to but you know it's funny because just last night I was I was talking to my husband about just the market in general he's not he's not in real estate but we always talk about stuff as it relates to what's happening and one of the things that came from that discussion was you know well what if right now for example you see a lot of press around companies that are taking up leases because they're like great deals right and so you know, how much of the pressure to take advantage of a great deal is there to move into nicer space, newer space, better space, right? So moving out of the older buildings and, and going into buildings that are better outfitted from a technology point of view and has better air quality and all of the stuff that's going to be important with return to work and potentially getting a good deal at it, but you've obviously you've got to commit to it uh, versus just waiting, waiting it out, right? And is there an advantage to committing to something now on the basis that you might not get as a great a deal in the future, but then balancing that with saying, but you might not need as much space because you're using this time to figure out how much space you actually need, right? So it's yeah. which is the better of the two, getting the better deal or waiting and, and actually 
figuring out exactly what you need before you commit to something longer term. Yeah, it's a bit of a gamble, isn't it? Because you could be 50% wrong on either end of this. You know, I see, I see some of that. I also see, and again, I'm a little bit of a proponent for the middle of the country here since I live in Minneapolis, but this sort of central part of the U.S., uh, I see stands to benefit from some of these, these decisions, especially if people are trying to go from very expensive downtown CBD space on the coasts to a more horizontal footprint in the middle of the country. You know, I think I've written an article a while back called Start Thinking About 2022 Now. And it was really about saying, you know, hey, it's couple years out that you're and I wrote that at the end of last year it's 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 a couple years out that you ought to think about what's going to shift and change and I saw that you know tech companies if they can hire talent in the middle of the country that they can pay less than you know they're paying their folks on the coasts maybe even some of the pharma centers up in New Jersey and other places that in Boston that uh, can hire talented people there's there's places like anything from Houston St. Louis Minneapolis all these central U.S. cities that stand to benefit, you know, and what that ends up being and the way I look at it in my mind, because I'm, I'm an outsourcing specialist, is instead of outsourcing the work to India or outsourcing the work offshore, it's kind of that same model. Instead of hiring people on the coast where there are expensive employees and expensive real estate and expensive occupancy costs, you hire for talent, but you have talented people located in the maybe in the middle of the country. You might actually see populations move to lower cost locations like the central part of the U.S. because they can get the job, they can work remotely, and they can still make a and proportionally a better living if they want to give up, you know, Southern California or whatever. You know, they have to be able to make some sacrifices too, but to move to the middle of the country and live a lot better. And still have the, you know, a good job with a good company. Right, right. Um, so I, I see that being sort of a, a model that sort of takes shape. The more re- remote work becomes the way we do things. You said that, you know, you're, it's all about outsourcing. What are your thoughts about the role of co-working space as part of workplace strategy going forward? Where traditionally when we thought about the workplace, it was about the owned or leased portfolio, which you basically manage. Now, all of a sudden, there's these co-working spaces that could become an extension of your your portfolio. So do you think corporations will take advantage of co-working spaces? Because traditionally, co-working spaces have been more for entrepreneurs, kind of self-employed that didn't necessarily have an office to work from. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely believe that if co-working is done right, it will be a hit. I actually had that on a, a presentation slide that I was delivering in, in some webinars late last year, but I put an asterisk by the word hit because I said co-working space will be hit if they can get this right. They have to make it a compelling third option to working from home or working from the office. Just like right now, working in the office has to be a compelling option to working from home. If it's not, people will work from home. But if that third space is not a compelling option to working from home or isn't give you what you get if you go into the office, then they won't be able to do it. But I think they will. I personally think that they can provide the right types of amenities, the right types of connectivity. And if they geographically locate it in places where folks from that company can all still work out of that co-located space, it makes sense. And uh, it's an idea that I think is really important and has been, you know, well-received with corporate clients. 
you know, there's obviously some some IT security concerns and other things like that that you know have to be worked around. There's the expense versus, you know, if you're going to spend money, would you rather have people in your own space or would you have rather have almost a premium rent for a co-working space? That's to be determined, but that's why the asterisk was always there. I think it'll be a hit. I, I, I agree. I think co-working definitely has a place in the future. And, and I agree. I think that figuring out what that compelling reason is going to be probably the biggest challenge because it's such a personal thing, right? I mean, you know, I know for me, for example, I've been working from home full time since 2007 or so. And so, you know, I often when I used to work for a corporation, you know, I'd go down to the office maybe four to six times a year for quarterly meetings or just when there was a an actual requirement or all, all hands on deck type of meeting. But I often think like now through the pandemic, if I was still working there and there was a co-working space close by, would I actually go to the office? And it'd be like, well, if I'm going to be going there to work by myself, I might as well just work at home. And what's funny about it is the company that I worked at actually had an office literally just down the street from where I work. There's a call center, but I used to go there when you know, my network went down. I needed to go and plug in rather than trek all the way downtown. I just popped into the office over here. And I used to think to myself, I was like, oh, I should come and work here sometimes, but I never did. It was, well, what's the point? Why do I drive 10, 15 minutes to go work there when I can work from home? Because the team that I was working with was scattered across Canada. So it wasn't that you were actually interacting with people in the office. And so it's like, well, I can do that from anywhere. I don't actually have to physically be in the office to do that, right? Right. But on the flip side of that, it's, you know, when I have uh, worked from home in the past, and I think I said this in one of my earlier podcasts, is that when I first started anyways, I used to sometimes just make it a point to go and work at Starbucks for a half a day because I wanted to be around people, right? And it was just that feeling of loneliness, I think, just when it first started. But eventually, once I got into the groove, that sort of disappeared. And just kind of knowing and feeling where I wanted to be on a particular day was just very empowering. Right. It was just mm-hmm. kind of like, OK, I don't have to feel like I'm being pressured to be somewhere because somebody's expecting me to be there and that I could make the decision based on either how I was feeling or what I needed to achieve for that particular day, which was a very different mindset rather than, you know, working based on a on an expectation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I you know, it's kind of funny you mentioned that because I, I going way back wrote an article called The Virtual Collapse of Corporate Culture. And this was right around the time where virtual work and remote work first started. I mean, this was early on. And the thought process was, you know, you had this feeling of disconnectedness. And I used to have that feeling when I was because I've been a remote worker, you know, for a majority of my career. And when you're not in the corporate office, you have that sort of sense of, you know, what's going on back there. I don't know what's going on. I'm not in the company grapevine. I haven't, you know, I'm not connected to what the latest scuttlebutt is in the office. And you you feel a little disassociated. But I also talked about this corporate culture that you can actually feel while you're in the office. I still struggle with that today. When I work with my clients, I I, I ask them, you know, do you have that sense of corporate culture that used to exist because when I first started my career, I got to tell you, every employee, you know, sort of bled the same colors for the company. You know, when we were all sort of part of the team, there was, you know, a lot of cheering going on amongst the team for successes and things like that. There were newsletters that talked about all sorts of stuff the company was doing. And there was a sense of identity that everybody had with their company. Now everybody's a freelancer. It feels like, 
you know, they're committed to the company to a certain extent, but there still seems to be this not defensiveness. What's the right word for this? There, there just seems to be a disconnect, uh, or at least some level of, I work for this company, but I don't, I'm not owned by this company, you know? And, and back when I started, maybe I, maybe I was a sellout. Maybe I did, uh, sort of overcommit, but there just seemed to be a, a greater sense of that. You know, you were on the team and you really were on the team. You were a franchise player, right? You weren't just a, a free agent. And I think we're going to see more of that disassociation as we start this remote thing in mass because everybody's going to be sort of a gig worker, if you think about it. They'll work for the company, but uh, there's a greater chance that they can get picked off by a competitor or somebody else because they're just sitting in their offices at home as opposed to going into the office every day. There's some advantage to employers to have people go into the office from a let's not let our people get recruited away standpoint because, you know, it's easier for headhunters to call you on your cell phone than it is on a company line. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why there's some challenges there. And I think that also leads, you know, some companies to want people into the office instead of uh, working remotely. Interesting. I totally agree. I mean, I think the future is, it remains to be seen. It's a, it's a TBD. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I totally believe that. I think we don't know a lot more than we, th- we know. In fact, I think most of us out there, at least in my things that I post on LinkedIn, I don't make a lot of like, this is what's going to happen. I may say, in my opinion, I'm seeing, you know, this trend and I'm curious about it and I'll ask other people's opinions about it. But, uh, I, I like to say I don't have all the answers, but I do know how to ask all the right questions. And so when I work with clients, my job isn't to tell them what to do. My job is to, to elicit from them what they want to do. And then once they tell me what that is or what they think they want to do, I'll push back to try to make sure that what their plans are are clear, achievable, and realistic. I always tell use those words. And that's where you know the art is, is, is in asking the right questions and getting the client to crystallize what what it is that they actually want to do in a very democratic way and in a way that's aligned to their culture in a way that aligns with their values and takes into account the whole balance of power, psychological safety, this whole bottom-up approach, you know, very attuned to what people want, systems thinking approach, change management approach, all of those all of those things that have to be that, that people have to be aware of. Well, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time and your insights. And thank you again for your time today. Any final, final thoughts? Well, I, I think we're on a journey together. So um, all I would say is that anybody listening to this podcast, I would really love it if they would link in with me, um, you know, find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter or, you know, visit my website. The, the LinkedIn aspect of it is is, is good because I publish a lot of content and I do bring that whole community of people, you know, workplace uh, professionals, and we all have a lot of lively debates on, on what we think, you know, is going to happen in the future and what we'd like to see happen in the future. So I'd love for others to join into that conversation. But, uh, Sandra, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you, and, and, and uh, I've had a great time. You're very welcome. Thanks again, Vic. <laughs>